What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. Great. Let's get this party started. Uh, so, my name is Atif Cotter, and this is Conversation at Michael Graves. Uh, in this series, we will hear the stories of American buildings from the perspective of the architects and developers who are constructing them. They'll talk about the process and the product on a deeply personal level, highlighting the teamwork, integrity, ingenuity, empathy, and commitment that's necessary to produce these works of art gracing the skylines of our cities and towns. Our very first guest in this series is Matthias Holowich, founder and partner of the architecture firm Hawken. He'll be talking about 25 Kent, his recently completed commercial building on the Williamsburg waterfront in Brooklyn. It totals 500,000 square feet divided between office, light manufacturing, and retail. It includes 1.8 acres of open space, and for you dog owners, a pop-up puppy spa and camp. <laughs> the owners of the project are Heritage Equity Partners and Rubenstein Partners. Matthias, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. So we're going to take it way, way back before 25 Camp. You started your firm in 1999 after having worked for Ren House for five years. What was going through your mind and your heart in making that decision to start your own firm? It was actually a small little gap between actually leaving uh, OMA with Ren Kuhlhaus. Um, because after having worked for such a master, uh, I realized that I needed to first have a reboot uh, because just going directly out of his office onto my own would mean that I would just try to do what he did, but maybe a little bit different. Sure. And uh, what I did actually in the interim, uh, I started teaching at ETH in Zurich, uh, and then I started something uh, more internet-based. It was actually called ETECT, Electronic Architecture Studio. It was a dot-com bubble in 2001. And was the idea that you would be producing designs for clients from all over the world without having to be near them? It was actually interesting that uh, we created technology that uh, was um, uh, the translator between architects with their drawings okay. and uh, the needs from private clients okay. for private homes. So you could actually, on a parametric design engine, how we called it, you could customize your own home based on drawings from architects. Okay. So it was really like a, a, it was a venture, it was still architectural, but it was also a kind of a whole different business model that we tested at that time. And then uh, after that, uh, slowly but surely, uh, through like a little bit uh, a, a pause in uh, Amsterdam, I came now 14 years ago uh, to America, and that's when the company started. So based on that unusual start, I shouldn't really be surprised about the way that you describe your firm. So you describe Hawken as a collection of design, construction and communication specialists led by an architect 
and tech entrepreneur, and Hawken is a new kind of architecture firm. How did you put those words together and, and make that decision to call your firm in that way? So the firm really started first with just being experimental and not having a theory. Sure. Uh, and really just grabbing any kind of opportunity and just exploring. And uh, there were like pop-ups uh, that happened with uh, Mini Cooper, then there were little installations and apartments uh, and the projects got bigger and bigger. But uh, what was always interesting then by reflecting on what was done before was that we never really followed just a typical footstep of what you expect from an architect as a pure designer. There was always a different sensibility, either way that architecture wanted to become a communication tool or it was uh, a support system for a new venture. Uh, so all of these things over time uh, really built up so that we could make that statement uh, today. Sure. So 25 Kent started with Toby Moskowitz, the owner of Heritage Equity Partners. We both know her well. Tell us how that relationship started. So one day uh, we got a call in the office and uh, basically uh, the person asked, I would like to come by and I may have a big project for you, uh, let's talk. Like, of course, small firm, uh, just won the Young Architects program with the Museum of Modern Art PS1 uh, and so we were kind of in the news. And so That's it, are you going to do it better? And I looked at these uh, plans, I was like, oh my god, yes, they're horrible. <laughs> so thank god they were really bad. Sure. Uh, but we were like, yeah. Because so the bar was set really low. The, so the bar was very, there. very low. Good. <laughs> But then the amazing thing is Toby is actually not a developer, now she's one, but at that time she was still kind of a tech investor out of Israel, came to New York, started with real estate and just really knew that something is changing right now. In the industry and what she wanted is a building that is really about uh, the future but rooted in the DNA of where it's from, which is Brooklyn. Sure. Uh, so she took uh, me basically on a tour and we walked through Brooklyn and she showed me all the things that she thought were interesting and were part of what makes Brooklyn so special, uh, where Vice Media moved in. Uh, you also had Amazon uh, just uh, rented some uh, studio spaces uh, for photo shoots and so on. So we had, like all of these interesting things. She all knew about it uh, and basically asked us, uh, to start to look into a design that derives out of uh, the future of real estate in terms of an office building, but also is very true to its locality, which is Brooklyn. And then, uh, yeah, what we like to do is not us as architects coming with this great vision, sure. actually come up with many different visions and engage with the client and have workshops. And then I still remember uh, it was an evening, it was slightly snowing, she came in with her kid, and we had multiple designs on, on the table and then we started sketching together uh, and very quickly the one scheme that became the forefront runner uh, was an idea about taking warehouses, just stacking them on top of each other uh, and having kind of an informality but also a very strong impression or an expression as a building uh, and that kind of won from the first day on uh, where we had that kind of workshop. Uh, and then a very long story of like ULIP and rezoning and everything happened uh, until it's now it's built. Sure, so it sounds like the warehouse aesthetic of Williamsburg um, was something that inspired your design. Were there any other things, for example, uh, the beautiful views of the, of the Manhattan skyline or oddly dressed hipsters, anything else? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so there's something, uh, let's say, in my design DNA, there's always something social. I think architecture has an incredible responsibility towards people. And um, what we wanted to do is by actually creating a big, uh, we call it was like a punch through the building that split the core and open the building to the community with a public access. Uh, that is something that actually really uh, determined the form uh, and the DNA of the building. Uh, I think that is a very, very big influence, but you can see that on every one of the projects uh, that kind of uh, I have done in, in my past. Um, the other element is um, really, of course, the cut and the split of the building with public plazas that are opening up. But that was also, uh, you have to give credit to the city, uh, the building department, they asked actually for more public access, which we love to incorporate into the design. Uh, but that was really a collaboration later on also during the ULIP process. Great. So to take it a step back, the eventual design that you chose was an eight-story building uh, with two wings, 15-foot uh, ceiling heights shaped like a pyramid, ziggurat style, with the ground floor pedestrian avenue underneath. Uh, given that there were certain designs that the developer didn't want, what were the designs that you passed on on the way to getting to this one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it was actually not so iterative because we had just a couple of alternatives. Okay. And the one was uh, the, the big box uh, floating on stills. And the next one is maybe two buildings. I, I don't even remember because we run through so many different design iterations. Um, but uh, it became very logical that this one was the one for that place. Um, because soon we had the first renderings done and the first messing, you just felt it, it just fit and it wanted to be there. And that is actually for me the art uh, and also the future of architecture that uh, you don't do any kind of grand vision anymore in terms of a organization and an aesthetic that you plop into different cities. Um, you actually have to look into what the city already offers and carve out these kind of qualities and intensify them in your projects. And with that, you create something that makes the city look better and not worse when your building is done. So in order to, <clears throat> in order to realize a lot of those, uh, those design intents that you had, you needed to have the square footage to actually build on the site. So you'd mentioned earlier that uh, there was uh, a limited FAR on the site, a floor area ratio. Uh, so in its original state, before it was rezoned, it was an FAR of two, which means uh, a two multiple of the lot area. So eventually what was built was a five FAR. How did that come to be? What was that process like? Yeah, so the, that is kind of the testament to an incredible collaboration. First of all, uh, first of all a visionary developer like Toby Moskovich and uh, Michael, her business partner, who basically knew she wants much more mass, uh, which was important for the site, but also, of course, for the financial balance sheet uh, for the development itself. So in order to have more square foot to rent, basically. Absolutely. And uh, for the effort of planning and, of course, the site cost and construction cost and so on. So there are there is at some point like a magic number that you would like to achieve. And she felt the five FAR is where the journey should go. Sure. But then uh, the interesting part was that she didn't go to the city and just ask for more area. She went to the city with our designs and excited them about the potential of the site. And that is what I feel also is something very um, kind of interesting for 
future negotiations with the city, don't just go there and say like, hey, we need more mass. Show what you offer for the additional density and excite people around it. Uh, and that's what she basically did with the collaboration with the city and the neighborhood. Uh, there was then a mandate to bring in also uh, light manufacturing into the building, sure. the public plazas, all of these kind of things played uh, a role in it. Uh, but that was really like, uh, the collaboration between the planning and of course the development itself. So would it be correct to say then it wasn't necessarily just about the thoughtfulness about the design, it was also about smart strategy and how to actually get it executed in a, in a public environment like that? Absolutely, and I think uh, it becomes more and more important that you integrate actually the uh, the community in your planning. Uh, we're just being asked actually in Berlin right now about a large area which is called RAW, uh, which is like totally like it's not even hipster. It's like outcasts who live there with like in their own kind of community. It's very anti-development. And our client has done some schemes and it's all being rejected. And now they're asking us to come up with an idea that emotionally picks up people with the potential of density that gives something to the community and it's not just abusive as a development. And that's what Toby Moskovich has done with us and the design on 25 Ken. It feels like it gives something to the community. It's not a loss that you lost one warehouse. You actually got a cool building with eight warehouses on top of each other. It's actually much better now because before it was a single block, just inaccessible. And now we have this public space in between and you have also cool cafes, restaurants and so on. So that's kind of what, um, uh, what I feel. It's, it's kind of the magic behind it. So the eventual end result of those public amenities were what you described. What were some of the original community responses and the pushback? Because I'm sure there was a lot of pushback about this design. Mm -hmm. There were actually not too many pushbacks. Uh, yeah, because there was already a story. We had these visuals and um, it was very well curated in terms of just informing people very early, informally, then more formally, uh, so that nobody has a bad surprise. Uh, and then I think the most important thing is that you built exactly what you promised. Sure. And that's what Toby did. And now we're doing the next one with her. So in the design, uh, in what you've described the design so far, you've talked about the physical connectivity, but let's also talk about the visual connectivity. So you chose to have curtain wall, curtain wall on the east and west facades that face the river in Williamsburg and punched windows on the north-south facades. Could you talk about uh, how you went through the decision of the materials that you used on the, the facade of the building? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so by having done the tours with Toby through the whole neighborhood, seeing all the warehouses and the beautiful textured bricks, that was immediately the intuition to use these materials for the majority of the building. And you used uh, multicolored bricks throughout. There's a certain variety of the color. Exactly. So you, you want to... I mean, it feels like as if it has been there and a little bit aged, but it also presents it as something cont um, contemporary. Uh, but then if you would do that for the whole building, then suddenly it becomes unclear uh, when it was really built. So that's sure. also why we cut it open almost li like a slice uh, with the super curtain wall where you can really look deep into the building and you see all the kind of activities of people expressed in the facade. Uh, and that is so important also. You want to make buildings speak to the audience on the outside 
uh, through the people in the inside. And this is what we like to do, exposing sometimes these kind of activities which happen at these two facades. And also bringing natural light to the centers of these floor plates, which isn't that common in office buildings. Exactly. And um, it feels almost as if 25 Kent is inspired also by European conditions okay. uh, because it's not a center core uh, with just your 42 feet lease span. Uh, it has a split core with a variation of different uh, lease depth. Uh, in some areas you have actually three sides of windows, uh, which is also much more European. We're doing right now a project in Munich and you see that there's a similarity in some of the DNAs in here. So would you say then the design decisions that you made help inform some of the, uh, the intent of the building from the marketing perspective? So for example, uh, in the marketing materials, words like share, cross-pollinate, trading ideas, breakthroughs, aha moments all appear. Uh, do you feel that the design helps support all of those ideas? Yeah, so I think uh, by actually going away from the typical dimensions and also the typical uh, organization, uh, we turned an office building into an urban campus. Okay. And that already uh, builds basically a lot of the kind of share communication and the more collective uh, kind of idea as, as a building, which you normally have to work so hard when you have a typical center core uh, center building, uh, because then it's really, uh, I think it's administrational and organizational you have to, uh, to do it. Uh, we did it just physically. Uh, and that's already the beginning of uh, that kind of uh, communal kind of feel. And by center core, you're referring to stairs and elevators in the center, everything else around it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So all of this sounds like a big departure from the way that office buildings are traditionally conceived. Do you imagine that there would be hesitation or confusion amongst uh, the actual office workers that would be in this environment? I think the confusion is still a lot with uh, leasing agents, sure. right? Okay. Because they are used to the spec sheets and this building doesn't comply to it. Um, but it's so fascinating. Um, actually, in spring, I was at ULI in Nashville and we saw a old building, which was a, um, what was it? It was a, not even like a factory. It was very weird with a lot of strange spaces that was about to be renovated. And next to it, they were planning to build a very beautiful new high-tech office. And uh, the people who were developing were basically saying like, look, it's kind of funny that we're gonna make so much more money per square foot on the old building because it's weird, it's unusual, this is what people want. And our new office building gonna it's going to be leased nicely, um, but it's less valuable. So the unlogical existing building has more value today than the rational high-tech building. And this is for me the lesson now. Uh, we have to break with all the different rules, what we have learned before, um, to create something that is emotional, uh, that becomes unforgettable for people. Uh, and it becomes something for the future of our industries, which is all about creativity, connectivity, innovation. And you cannot do that in a typical box anymore. Okay. And actually to bring it back to some of the one thing which I still remember like so vividly with Rem Kohlhaas, uh, we worked on a office building for Universal in LA. And we had a problem about the executive floor to the regular floor to the lobby, uh, parking and offices again, and then the basement. And uh, we had to coordinate the grid to make it efficient. 
And I was an executive architect and they worked on the grid for a couple of days uh, and then they had a big presentation to Rem Kolhas at the time and they were like, well, we combined all the grids and we found out the perfect grid is four foot two. And then Rem lit up, was like, great, now we know which grid we're not going to use. <laughs> And it was for me, it's like, yes. That's incredible story. And, uh, and I think uh, 25 Kent is doing exactly that. It's doing everything wrong, what normally somebody would tell you to do. Which might actually speak more intuitively to people then. Yeah, and also uh, you see it also on the Hertz building, for example, when uh, Sir Norman Foster created the angled um, uh, facade on yeah. the corners. All the leasing agents were like, no, 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 this is wrong because you need the corner exposed and this is where the executive is going to sit. Uh, nobody going to like to sit on the angled facade. Yeah. These are now the most desired places because it's different, it's special, it's, it's unusual. And our whole society is looking for individuality, for the self-expression, and you cannot do that in a generic office building anymore. So the design timeline for 25 Kent was almost 10 years. And plus or minus eight yeah, years ago, yeah, a little faster. Eight, seven. <laughs> so two of the core aspects of what you've described uh, in your design strategy is open office and co-working. So over the past year, there's been an avalanche of negative opinions about both of those and those applicability, the applicability of either of them to the future of office. What are your thoughts about uh, open office and, and co-working? I think 25 Kent is actually something different. Uh, you can call it a flex asset. The building is so sturdy and it's so dimensioned beyond the 14 feet floor to floor. It's actually 15, eight uh, and uh, the big columns and the lease span. You can do anything with it, right? Um, you can, you can, we just had uh, beyond the streets, uh, a big art exhibition. Sure. So it turned into a museum. Right now you have also Smurgisburg moving in. It's going to be a big open market. So it's actually much more important now to think about buildings as assets for the future that are convertible into all kinds of different things. And we're actually exploring right now um, in Germany uh, into typologies where you can switch a office building into an apartment, into a hotel. And we're also looking into parking, turning into office, turning into hotel and actually building already the facades with the logic of light and air for all the different asset classes. Because who knows, right? Who knows if we still need all of these offices in 10 years? Uh, and maybe our apartment typology is going to turn much more into co-living or into hotels, or they're going to turn back into apartments. We don't know anymore. So we have to future-proof our buildings through kind of sturdiness and flexibility. But that doesn't mean that they need to become generic. They just need to become so um, independent that they can live with these different topologies. So the idea being that it's not just about buildings that have mixed uses um, at one given time. It's about the ability for the building to change over time as well, to have multiple uses. And we look into warehouses, they change, right? Sure, and yeah. they became from um, logistics suddenly into offices and then into apartments. Uh, so that is for me much more the future than these kind of very typical uh, optimized uh, single typologies that are totally outdated today. So let's talk about the team that was necessary in order to execute on this design. So your team included Robert May, Brad Engelsman, Andrew McBride, Adam Hostetler, Valentina, Valentina Mealy, 
Gregory Nakata and Matthew Hoffman. I apologize if I missed anybody. Oh, but how many, did you? But yeah. I'm sure there are many more. Uh, how did you organize your team? So for the team, I mean, the office is also evolving, which is interesting. Uh, and but what became more and more important for us is that um, uh, there's always like one portion of a team that's incredible discipline to always understand everything technical. Uh, anything that are standards so that we know what we have to break yeah. uh, and then there's another team who can just play mindlessly by not knowing these kind of things and then at some point we bring them together and it's very painful and that's kind of the magic between the creative and the rational that you can see in every one of our buildings uh, and um, uh, and you see then people in the team to find their place or sometimes also to switch the places uh, but there's some people who just stick in the office. Many of them have moved on and actually having their own careers. Uh, and it's actually exciting to see also people to grow beyond our firm. Uh, but then credit to Robert May. Uh, he was actually my student uh, many years ago. Uh, he came to uh, Hawken as his first job. And uh, he's, uh, since, uh, he's there ever since. He's still there, never left. Never left, and he probably has touched uh, every one of our buildings uh, since he's in the office. And um, he basically acts as kind of a lead designer and design director on many of these projects. So, from I think that's a testament to the the quality of your firm and its focus on uh, developing talent. But it sounds like the the values that you have are about having the design be something that's not necessarily owned by you, the principal, but something much broader, which is actually. Uh, I think relatively unusual in our industry. Could you talk about some of the, more of the values that you uh, you focus on when when leading and developing teams? Yeah, I think it goes uh, within our team, but also even beyond the team. Uh, I think we are one of the very few firms who actually come to the first meeting with ten different uh, schemes and uh, drawings, and then we give our client sharpies and say, like, by the way anything you want to change or what you want to do different just draw it up and show us and tell us and even at the university of pennsylvania where we did the innovation center which is their innovation center um, it's it used to be at least one of the most conservative real estate departments uh, on the planet i would say and we served the red bull <laughs> and then put all of these drawings 10 of the different schemes on the wall and asked everyone to draw and give us ideas and then we gave them dots and everyone gave us like red dots and green dots and uh, with that it was an incredible experience where you learn so quickly from your client where they think uh, the journey could go you empower them to become co-designers and in the end you actually don't know anymore who created it uh, but it's also with this it's almost like rapid prototyping more product ideas um, or let's say like feedback research as a design process and we do that within our team internally and we do that also with our clients and it's an awesome experience you let down the guards and uh, you figure out what's the best for a project together. And it sounds like you would have created allies amongst your uh, client in doing that because uh, those people that took the Sharpie and those red dots and now have ownership for that, that design that they, they helped to evolve. Absolutely. And at Penovation, uh, the funnest part was really at the toughest moments when you do value engineering. Uh, everyone was behind the design and even our client could answer their own questions. They were like, no, we have to save some money here and there. Because, yeah. uh, but they were like, no, we know what you want. This one we cannot touch. Here we can touch. 
Uh, and then uh, and and then even like moments where there was like one design element which was an existing stair tower um, on top of the roof. For us, it was very important. It goes away. And and Papador, the head of real estate, uh, said basically like, no, we have to save the thirty thousand dollars. It stays. And I know Matthias is going to be painful. Uh, and uh, I accepted it for like ten minutes. And then when I had a chance, I readdressed it again. <laughs> Uh, I actually offered $15,000 of my own money to take it down if uh, Anne Papador would have matched it. And I never have seen her speechless, uh, but she rebooted after one minute and she took it down, she paid for it, but uh, I owed her for the rest of my life. But, really. um, but that's kind of the, like the, the relationship you build with your client when you do these kind of open workshops. This interactive process. So besides your own internal team, there is a, a co-design partner uh, Gensler. Could you talk about how that relationship worked? Yeah, so what we typically do, uh, which is extremely successful, um, normally architects, what they tend to do is schematic design, then design development, and then as a design architect, you hand over your drawings and then somebody else does his drawings. The architect of record. Exactly. Um, what we like to do, we like to bring the architect of record or the local partner very, very early into the design so that they already have the emotional connection. We also empower them to, of course, become co-designers with us. And it's a very, very smooth transition. For 25 Kent, uh, it was a little bit different because we started as design architects and then uh, Gensler took over uh, and then they basically uh, doing uh, design development, developed the project further. Uh, the beauty was that our design was basically done and it's a, when you think about it from the principles, it's a very, very simple building. So they were able to execute on our vision perfectly uh, until the very end, even that we were not very involved in the later phases, which now for every other project, and we were a very young firm at that time, uh, for any other project now we have more control later. Uh, but in this case it worked out perfectly because they could execute on our vision so clearly. So would you say that the integrity of your original design uh, remained throughout? Yes, there's one detail which I will not tell you what it is. Could they perhaps be the light fixtures? <laughs> no, something, oh, uh, okay. yeah, <laughs> maybe two. <laughs> I did my one. homework, you can tell. <laughs> There's one more detail where my, every, every time I pass through the building, I cringe and I'm like, but it's fine. <laughs> You'll be zen about that and about that one day. Okay. I made my piece. And also, just for the records, um, when clients later on change things on the building, I'm fine with it because uh, buildings have to have their life on their own. And sure. I think uh, the real authorship is uh, and uh, the people who are using it. Great. Mm -hmm. So Conversations at Michael Graves is hosted by Michael Graves Architecture and Design, a world-renowned firm that has been serving clients worldwide for 55 years. From their offices in Princeton, New Jersey, New York City, and Washington, D.C., they provide planning, architecture, interior design, and graphic design services for many different building types, from hotels and resorts to office buildings, cultural and educational facilities, housing, healthcare, and civic structures, all are part of their repertoire. With hundreds of awards for design excellence, it's obvious that they care deeply about their profession and are keen to share their ideas widely. So we'll switch over more to the business side. When I spoke to Marianne Gilmartin recently about Brooklyn, she explained about how difficult it is 
to get an office tenant in Manhattan to cross the bridge. Um, besides 25 Kent, there's Dock 72 by Boston Properties and Rudin nearby. Who do you think is going to tenant these outer borough office buildings and where are they coming if not from Manhattan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the basically the, the base premise is that most people live in Brooklyn who are the hipsters, the creatives and uh, the innovators. And you should go where the people are. Uh, and I think that is what a lot of companies still are hesitant about uh, because they think more about the image of Manhattan. They may think more about their clients who they need to basically serve in their buildings. And they just hop into the plane. They know where the Uber goes and Manhattan is an easy choice. Uh, but uh, where everywhere right now uh, the movements are, are going to, it's towards serving the people who work for you because that is the value that you have in your company. The human capital. The human capital. And uh, by understanding that the human capital is right now in Williamsburg, in Bushwick, in Brooklyn, or now also Queens and the Bronx, right? It's happening right now. And that is oh, there where... there are other outer boroughs besides... Oh, yeah, yeah, there, it, there, so. there, there. It's cooking, it's happening. Um, that is where now the investments have to happen from these firms. And uh, it's just a matter of time now that they're going to understand and really jump over, over the river. So it sounds like you think that that's not too big of a of a distance to cross. Eventually Manhattan tenants will come because the realization of the talent they want to they want to attract and to retain. Yeah, and you have seen it already with all, for example, the hotels are popping up left and right. And my clients now always asking me, by the way, where should I stay when they come from Germany? And I'm always like, okay, you have like a couple of cool hotels in, in Manhattan and uh, here a couple of cool ones right now in uh, Brooklyn. And now I'll go to Brooklyn. And they're from Germany, right? So normally what's always think they would go to Manhattan first, uh, but they already made the jump. They understand that this is where the much cooler bars, restaurants uh, and events are. And that's where they want to be. So your perspective is that it's an eventuality as opposed to a conditional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the goal of 25 Kent is to have studios based out of the building with shops on the ground floor where tenants can sell the products that they've been manufacturing. Uh, that has influenced the tenanting for the project so far. Do you feel that this will become increasingly common in office environments around New York City, as opposed to the current service relationship where you'll have an office tenant above and then retail serving those, uh, those tenants below, like a cafe or a coffee shop? Yeah, I think you see it in uh, office use, but also very strongly right now in residential use. Uh, we call it actually uh, retail as amenity. Uh, so where you want to create uh, and curate basically everything in the building to serve the identity and the mix in the building. And um, right now apartment buildings still do it on the kind of amenity floor and very often it just looks pretty but nobody ever uses it. Empty. Uh, right, and so some buildings have managed to make that more um, functioning uh, and I think this is where the journey is going. But the retail is part of the amenity and this is how we have to understand it. You have to make sure that it fits with everything together as an added benefit. And maybe you don't make as much money off the retail as you would hope uh, to make, um, but I think retail is changing so drastically anyway, so everyone should be happy to make some money in retail space anyway. <laughs> so again, uh, low bar for success, I guess. So. Yeah, or let's say by thinking differently about, uh, so I saw it for example in one um, smart developer in New Jersey, 
what he always does is um, he gives the rent away for the retail space for the first three to five years and always finds entrepreneurs in the neighborhood and gives them opportunities. And then suddenly you have a cupcake store of like a um, hobby chef who always just wanted to do it and said like, now here's your business opportunity, um, real estate for free for a couple of years, okay. but if you make money I take a percentage. And suddenly the person is incredible personal, uh, it goes above and beyond to build a business and uh, there actually many of these uh, little retail spaces became uh, very successful uh, ventures. Uh, beyond the building, but then even the gratefulness of the people who got this opportunity resonates out uh, above and beyond the building. Uh, so there's a, that is the most extreme of a curation. You can do that softer and, and maybe not that, um, um, yeah, that risky in a way, uh, but it's the same principles that you have to apply for your buildings at this point. So what it sounds like is that it's a growth beyond the traditional real estate business model of what can I make per square foot and combining that more with the venture capital model to understand what can I make in the long term, not just the short term. Is that correct? Yeah. And also if you have, um, let's say 20,000 square feet of retail, but you have uh, 480,000 square foot of office and uh, you maybe discount your retail and you yeah. get a little bit more money on the office, the money, the, the balance sheet should work. So about non-traditional uses, Brooklyn Flea and Smorgasburg started as tenants at 25 Kent just this weekend. Could you explain who they are and why they're at 25 Kent? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, 25 Kent uh, is such a sturdy building that anything can happen. And from the museum before, from the offices, uh, office tenants now to a market, Smurgisburg, which is yeah. basically an outdoor market uh, in Brooklyn, uh, which is uh, renowned, world-renowned at this point. Um, the, the DNA of the building offers that such a tenant can move in. Uh, and uh, I believe it's a temporary use uh, for the winter, uh, but that's where the building's really well thought through, just to allow that to happen. So it's that theme of how can the building and its tenancy evolve and change over time to create this really dynamic places for people to want to come shop and uh, work as well. Yeah, and it's uh, for the owner right now, it's all about placemaking, about introducing the building to the largest audience possible sure. uh, so that there's an excitement so that uh, when the tenants are all fixed, uh, it has its uh, purpose uh, as a um, intentional curated building uh, because yeah, I mean, I'm sure you could get a lot of tenants just to move in but it's not the point to get uh, anyone in it, it needs to be the right mix. Sure. So from that perspective, 25 Kent is a next generation workplace for the next generation of leaders and a social campus for innovators, startup founders and tech leaders. Those are the words that are used to describe the building. How do you think that uh, it'll be possible to measure if the building design was able to live up to those ideals. Yeah, it's going to be the future will tell. Um, but as an example, for example, um, generation, uh, the university is very, um, uh, how would you say it, um, reflective on the successes of the building. Sure. And uh, they're actually measuring the venture capital the companies have raised. Uh, they measure how many people have visited. Uh, what kind of events are happening 
and uh, the building actually superseded their expectation by a multifold. Uh, and um, by having seen that a 60,000 square foot uh, building can do that far away from the campus uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, you can see that very easily translated to a 500,000 square foot office uh, close to Manhattan in Williamsburg, uh, where everything is happening right now in terms of the, the creative energy of the city. So then it would be perhaps it'd be correct to say that a lot of what the success of your design is is about understanding a building as branding and creating unforget unforgettable architecture. Yeah, and uh, the branding needs to come out of the building itself. Right? It's very easy to Splash come up it. with a cool name and create good slogans, uh, but what's so exciting about it is that actually the DNA and the image and also the, uh, the um, inclusion into the neighborhood uh, in itself is a brand. The, the, even like the name on Tintback Kent, I mean, it's like it's the worst name. But it works, right? Because it's just you show the picture of the building. That's helpful. Yes. But I think uh, the the image of the building speaks for itself, sure. and that is for us the kind of the power of a architecture that is exactly how you mentioned. Uh, for me now, the unforgettability that's coming in uh, has different um, elements that have to play together to make that happen, and that building really stands for it. Okay. Let's go bird's eye view. What does 25 Kent mean to you personally as the architect? And what does it mean to you in the progression of your career? So for me, the most exciting moment is when a building is done and people embrace it. And you see people uh, are happy uh, and uh, maybe meet new friends. Uh, make new connections, or if they work there, that they have a fulfilling life uh, sure. in, the, in the work environment. And that's uh, what I see with 25 Kent. Uh, I saw people just walking by and taking their selfies, uh, or talking to the people passing by, and I was like, what the hell is this building? Let's check it out. Right? And then passing through, they went into the um, Beyond the Street exhibition, uh, and uh, you, you see like the hashtags just go, uh, crazy, uh, just by people embracing already what's happening in, in the building. And so this is for me really the, the moment of satisfaction. Of course, there are the, like moments of excitement in the process, right? When you figure out how the building gonna look like, it's an amazing moment, right? Because uh, you create something that nobody ever has thought about it before, and some suddenly you see it in front of you. And now, of course, now five more years to go until it's really built and. Uh, experience for other people. Uh, so that's that's number one. Um, now from here on I see that now finally people can go into a building and see what I have talked about for so many years. And it's basically a proof of concept and this is also an incredible business development tool. Uh, so I'm seeing right now a lot of people uh, having already used the image of 25 Kent in the deck uh, sometimes the mistake, of course, our partner firm as originator and the hiring Gensler uh, now is like, hey, can you do that building again? It's like, no, somebody else had the idea first, right? So <laughs> you need maybe to hire us and Gensler to create the next 25 Ken. Sure. Uh, but, um, uh, but we have a lot of people now approaching us and it's helpful, of course, to have realized such a building on such a dimension and with, with the meaning of the building. That's great. So we have time for a few uh, questions from the audience. All right, questions.
Hi audience. <laughs> Do you think that the the um, development of Domino, the Domino site, was a help to catalyze some of the market in Brooklyn that perhaps helped your project uh, go through Europe? Yeah, so uh, I don't know how much uh, <laughs> I can tell you about how much it helped or didn't help. Didn't, right. Because uh, as much I recall, uh, but I may be mistaken, uh, there was a, a grand vision that was presented to the city and as soon they went through ULIP, a couple of things got changed because now they had a lot of freedom to change things because rezoning in New York gives you sometimes a lot of uh, freedom uh, as soon as it's done. Uh, so our process was watched much more carefully that our design was built into the rezoning text. Uh, so it was very design descriptive, uh, which for me as an architect is awesome, right? because it gives a lot of um, uh, security in, uh, so that the design is being realized uh, based on our vision. Uh, but I believe it costs like a couple of months on um, uh, the process time which normally is very costly and difficult, of course, for a client. So, um, yeah, I don't think it really helped that much uh, because of the timing, but it maybe helped that the design stayed actually more true to its intention. Um, but now 25 Kent is helping a lot of other people yes. to actually rezone things because of its uh, embrace of from the neighborhood and uh, also the city. I think the city is very proud of it. Awesome. More questions? When you're evaluating a, a project to go, no go, um, how do you, what are your criteria for determining whether or not you're going to pursue a project? We get some very, very good advice very early. Two things have to come together from three things. Fame, fun, and fortune. <laughs> All three have never come together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most of the projects are fun. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and maybe fame, right? Um, uh, fortune is urgently important. Uh, no, but these are the principles, right? So if it's just about um, a fortune, it's not worth it, right? Because uh, it's it's not going to be a satisfying experience. And I think as an architect, we don't go into this profession to become rich because it's impossible. Uh, but uh, we go into this profession because of our pa uh, passion and about the purpose that uh, we believe in, in architecture to create something uh, important for people. More questions? So, thank you so much for joining us, Matthias. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, next month, uh, we'll be interviewing Samer Hanini, the founder and partner of Hanini Group uh, Development, construction and architecture firm based in Newark, New Jersey. Their historic renovation projects have been covered by everyone from the Wall Street Journal to Vogue magazine. My name is Atif Kader and this has been Conversations at Michael Graves. Thank you. Thank you very much.